Hello, I'm Dr. Marla Grinsky from the Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai, New York, and I'm joined here by my colleague, Dr. Ben Cohn, who's also at Icon School of Medicine. So thanks, um, Ben, for joining me today. We're going to update uh, everybody on the topics that we've been really learning from here at the Great Debates and Updates in Inflammatory Bowel Disease here in Dallas. And I want to first talk about sort of a really hot topic that it just doesn't seem to go away, which is the role of therapeutic drug monitoring. So, and you know, when we have debates, and even at all of our meetings, you have this like for and against, and then you really get to the scoop, and it's everyone's sort of practicing the same. So maybe if you can summarize key points about where are we today uh, in terms of the data, what are we missing, and sort of what do we need to try and um, strive for? So I think a lot of great information came out in the lectures this morning, and really in that pro-con debate talking about reactive versus proactive therapeutic drug monitoring. And I think most of the data is now pushing us towards the proactive therapeutic drug monitoring, particularly in the uh, early phases of treatment with anti-TNF therapy. So that that induction period is really the critical period. And I think that came out well in the lectures this morning that if we wait to monitor drug levels until, say, 14, 20 weeks, we may be missing the boat, and those patients already may have developed antibodies, and then we're behind the eight ball and winding up switching to other therapies. So I think some of the key take-home points for uh, for the audience today were really to think about checking drug levels potentially sort of at the end of induction, assessing at that point whether you're hitting uh, uh, target levels, and those targets are changing. So I think that's one of the things that we see evolving every every time you go to one of these conferences, the, the number moves up maybe of what we're <laughs> shooting for. Uh, you gave some good guidance sort of on some of the experience at Mount Sinai looking at drug levels at the end of induction with infliximab or at the with infliximab sort of targeting especially at the at the two week mark, looking for a drug level of twenty five or greater potentially and moving up that third induction dose if you're not at that drug level. Um, so I think that was one of the key points in my mind that the, that the audience took home today. You know, I think what we learned is sort of, as you know, how I'm sort of very um, passionate about this idea that if you don't start off correctly and give enough when the disease is most active, how are you going to make it to maintenance? And what a lot of we were, a lot of the times we were extrapolating sort of maintenance levels, like a level of five, seven, whatever. It kept changing three uh, a while ago, and we were copying and pasting that to when they're sick and induction. It kind of now we've sort of learned that you probably need more when you have more inflammation. Uh, for example, in the acute severe UC patient. Um, you very nicely showed that patients who have higher CRPs and low albumins need more, and that it ends up that probably we should, when we talked old school about turning the pyramid upside down, truly what we're talking about giving the right amount up front and then de-escalating once the patient is well. So I think we sort of realized that it looks like a level of 10 is the new 3 or the new 5, uh, and that would be in maintenance. And as you noted, 25 at the second infusion you would strive for, and a level around 15 at the third infusion. And if the level's low already at the third infusion, you need to bring them back earlier for their fourth and not wait the eight weeks. Uh, and I think the point, like you said, is 
we're now moving towards proactive, even though the AGA guidelines said there wasn't enough data. I think we actually have more data on proactive now than we even have on reactive, because I think people have sort of abandoned that concept with anti-TNFs. We did note that we can't so much say the same yet. It's early days for vedolizumab and for ustekinumab. Uh, there's just a dabbling of data, so I think we're most stronghold on anti-TNF. There's also the concept of being proactive, not only in drug monitoring, but your lecture, which was fantastic, on there's a lot of things we're not doing that is preventable. And so maybe let's speak a little bit about vaccines, and then we can talk about pregnancy, because they kind of do tie in together. So what do you think are the key messages in the vaccination space we need to sort of share with our listeners? So I think one of the real key points is that patients who are on immunosuppressive therapies have a decreased response to many of our vaccines. So it needs to be part of our our algorithm when we're discussing therapeutic options with patients that if we're going to be starting immunosuppressive therapies, specifically anti-TNFs or other biologic medications, that we have to be talking to them about the preventative things they can do at that time to have, have the best chance at wellness later on. So if we give vaccines just prior to starting those immunosuppressives, we may have a better shot at preventing flu, pneumonia, herpes zoster. And so I think that needs to be part of our decision making. And it, it's tough, as we talked about today, because we're bombarded with all these things that we have to take care of in a 20-minute patient visit, talking about risk benefits and medications, and then sometimes those health maintenance uh, things that we can do to prevent illness in patients get left by the wayside. So I think part of my practice now is really to integrate the vaccine discussions into the discussions about therapy, framing the risks for patients that their risk of developing preventable illnesses is higher than the general population in many cases, and then even higher when they're on uh, the various therapies that we're using. So we have to to work early to prevent those complications later. Can you remind us about the whole live vaccine situation is that we know that it's per CDC contraindicated with biologics, and that's sort of a blanket statement. But then you start to read the idea that you could give it to patients, a lot of our patients actually, steroids, thiopurines, and methyl. Can you remind us what is considered low immunosuppression versus high, where live vaccines, even varicella and zostervax, which we really were avoiding. Can you remind us? So the the definition of low-level immune suppression are prednisone doses less than or equal to 20 milligrams. Uh, Thiopurine doses, at weight-based doses, greater than what we use in, in IBD, so an azathioprine dose of three milligrams per kilogram, uh, and then uh, greater doses of 6MP than what we use. We generally use the 1 to 1.5 mg per kg weight-based dosing. And then same thing with methotrexate, uh, doses much greater than what we actually use in practice. So, you know, while I think many of us were avoiding using Zostavax because we just said, oh, any kind of immune suppression, we, we can't use the vaccine. In, in reality, we could be vaccinating many patients with a Zostavax. So when it comes to biologics, though, you had discussed that there are times that you may have to hold therapy uh, or not initiate therapy. So a lot of the discussions we have with the younger people who are not immune, let's say, to varicella, um, particularly in the patients I would manage, 
is that I have to make the decision, am I going to revaccinate or give them a varicella booster and then avoid giving, let's say, a biologic for four weeks, you mentioned, is that on average, sort of, if you give even measles, mumps, rubella, the same thing. If someone is not immune to it, you wait um, the four-week period. But if they're on a biologic, you did mention that you shouldn't you should be off it for about 12 weeks, I believe, before you actually give them the vaccine. So there's a lot to, to think about, and I think you did mention that nice review from Frank Ferre in the American Journal of Gastroenterology, just published last year, so it's relatively uh, new, and it did um, talk about Sostervax, so let's, I mean, sorry, Shingrix, most importantly. Um, let's talk about that, and why is that relevant is because of tofacitinib. Uh, the data uh, on the safety of tofacitinib, maybe you can talk a little bit about the impact of dosing and how the risk didn't change over time, which I thought that was a fascinating uh, report you showed. So that's right. I think it's fresh in all our minds now with the approval of tofacitinib that there is this risk of herpes zoster infection. Uh, and the, the data I was referring to was uh, looking at all of the trial data from the OCTAV trials, so they had the phase two, phase three open label extension studies combined, and what you saw was a signal that definitely in, there's a higher risk of herpes zoster infection in uh, the 10 milligram dosing, uh, but you also have an increased risk in the 5 milligram dosing. The, the incidence ratios were about 3 to 3.5 for the 5 milligram, and then over 4. Uh, for the 10 milligram in that particular study. And, and again, what you showed is, well, what you were discussing is that the, the slide I showed showed that in time periods throughout the course of treatment, the, the risk was stable. So it's not something where if somebody doesn't get that infection right at the beginning of treatment that they're in the clear. It's something we have to have on our minds throughout. And that's the reason why I think many of us are going to be vaccinating our patients for herpes zoster, particularly uh, one starting tofacitinib, but I reminded the audience that, in fact, with all of our immunosuppressive therapies, there is an increased risk of herpes zoster. So while we're thinking about it now, it's something we probably should have been thinking before as well. I mean, especially by appearance. I mean, when everyone was talking about the risk of zoster with um, tofacitinib, I think we all kind of felt like, what's, what's everyone making a big deal about this? Um, we don't, we've seen it with thiopurines and we didn't have the killed vac, you know, we didn't have Shingrix, so we were scrambling to decide what we were going to do, holding the medication until lesions have crusted over, like we had this whole thing. And now we, we have this opportunity to have the killed vaccine. And I think right now it's approved for above 50, just like the live vaccine, the Zostervax. So we have the inactive version of Shingrix. Do you think if you take across the board, if it could be, do you think all of our IBD patients should be vaccinated with Shingrix moving forward, age, age independent? It's a tough question because we just don't have the studies in younger populations. I think this is where shared decision-making really comes into play, and we have to have a discussion with our patients about the risks of herpes zoster infection and then guide them in the fact that while these vaccines we think are going to be preventative for herpes zoster. We don't know the impact of the vaccines in younger age groups where they haven't been studied and that there could be some theoretical risk of 
you know, we don't know if it's going to precipitate disease flare in patients, for example. And I know that in our group at Mount Sinai, we've had discussions about should we be advising all patients to get this. And I, I think where I fall on the spectrum is that I think the herpes zoster is a significant infection, and I'm advising many of my patients to get the vaccine, but I'm framing it in the context of the fact that we still need more data, and hopefully as Shingrix gets used more widely, we're going to be collecting real-world data, uh, looking for potential adverse events related to the vaccine itself. I think people were concerned that it's highly, meaning it generates a very strong immune response, so like you said, is it going to generate more disease activity? Unknown. Um, but I think you're right, it's going to be a risk-benefit discussion along the way. And they actually had a panel at the CDC that did it, did it actually say, age aside, that if you were anticipating immunosuppression, it may be warranted. So I think that fits sort of with our group. And I know that they are testing it in transplant patients in the ages that we would manage, 18 to 50, for example, 26 to 50 would be the age group that we'd be worried about and that we'd be dealing with. So I think there's a lot to be said and there's a lot more for us to learn about it. But we always land on the side after having a lot of discussions that we should just do it. And so I think it'll be interesting in a year from now we may have a different a different thought about it. So in terms of um, other vaccines like hepatitis B and the Pneumovax, I think those are, and Prevnar 13 now um, as part of the pneumonia series, I think because they're inactive, um, we fully support and the guidelines also show that we should be revaccinating. But you did show some interesting data on Hep B and that um, only about, I believe, 60% of patients um, were immune and then some of them needed two revaccination series even with double dose. Is that right? Did right. I understand that data? So yeah, there was, a, there was a publication in 2012 out of the Red Journal uh, and so in, in a normal healthy population, we would expect 90% of patients to have a sufficient antibody response. And I'm defining that as 10 international, greater than 10 international units per liter after the standard dose three vaccination series. Uh, and this article, they, they used a high-dose hepatitis B vaccine given uh, more rapidly than the standard dose. So they give it in zero, one, two months as opposed to zero, one to two uh, four to six months, uh, but uh, patients, whether they were on anti-TNF or not, had a decreased uh, response to the vaccine as compared to, say, the general population with about 60%, as you said, after one vaccination series with high dose. And then so they revaccinated any patient who had less than 100 international units per liter response. So they used a, a much more robust uh, vaccine response to trigger the revaccination. And then even then, only 79% total of patients had a vaccine response of 10 international units per liter. So, yeah. I mean, I think it just, this was, uh, you know, this wasn't even something I necessarily realized before I was putting together the talk, and it reinforces the fact that we need to be checking titers even after that first vaccination series and then revaccinating potentially at higher doses. And that's what the guidelines for both ACG and ECHO say. So I think we'll sort of end our section because it's just we can go on forever on some of these very important preventive measures. And the discussion about vaccine really sort of reminds me I need to put the vaccine in the context of pregnancy. So we had a discussion today that um, if you just took some key points from pregnancy or preconception, pregnancy and postpartum care, if we go through that spectrum, we know that fertility, 
probably is most impacted by age. And I think no matter how we look at it, data from patients who are sort of above 30, you start to decrease your fertility risk whether you have IBD or not, and then above 35, and it just continues to have decreased fertility with age, but also tied to inflammation. And I think we emphasize the importance of inflammatory control and even probably impacting ovarian reserve and more data than needed. When we got into the actual, um, what is the one thing that does impact fertility in IBD patients today, it's women who've undergone a J-pouch, meaning actual iliopouch anal anastomosis going into the pelvis, um, could reduce fertility rates by up to 50% or more, and more data is needed. In terms of during pregnancy, um, we talked about the role of IBD alone does not increase the risk of congenital malformations, and to date, other than methotrexate or thalidomide, we actually don't have any data to support that any of our medications, including thiopurines, despite them carrying this category D forward, causes any congenital malformation risk, but the one thing that does impact pregnancy outcomes is inflammation. So again, the message about inflammation control sort of continues, and that if you have more inflammation, less disease control, there's a risk of intrauterine growth retardation, preterm delivery, preterm labor. And then the other big question that a lot of um, members of the audience were interested is the timing of when you give biologics, because that's always a question for fear that biologics do cross the placenta in the last trimester, except for sertilizumab, because it's pegylated, so it's different. It lacks that FC receptor. But all of the others, vitalizumab, ustekinumab, adalimumab, and infliximab, definitely do cross. We have measurements of cord blood levels of these biologics, and, but the, night, the good thing is, is that when we showed with data from Piano uh, Registry that despite exposure or not, pa- um, babies do not have increased risk of infections post-delivery. And we've seen that there's no risk to breastfeeding, meaning these medications, albeit maybe in breast milk, but at very small levels, do not appear to uh, impact the ability to breastfeed. So we're fully supportive of that. Um, again, the idea is that the molecule is quite large and probably a little difficult for the baby to digest, actually, so that um, decreases the risk with breastfeeding. Probably the biggest question is the role of tofacitinib. You talked about um, that in, its, in the world of zoster, some of the unknowns. It's the newest kid on the block for us uh, in IBD. So far, we have data from psoriasis, um, rheumatoid arthritis, and some IBD data from the trials, and some random open label or officer post approval data that shows so far that despite animal studies showing an increased risk of fetal malformations, um, that it does not appear to have increased risk of congenital malformations in those small number of women exposed um, to date. So much more data is needed, but so far, miscarriage and congenital malformations are not increased. Um, and then probably the, the other point about vaccines you, uh, in follow-up to your discussion is that as of now, except for babies exposed to sertilizumab, the rules kind of are that we're avoiding all live vaccines in the first six months of life of these babies, which is, just means rotavirus. All other vaccines are inactivated. And the next time that babies see live vaccines, which is the measles, mumps, rubella, and the chickenpox or varicella, is at a year so we're good to go. And the last point would be mode of delivery. There's a lot of controversy about this. We do know that the absolute contraindication to 
vaginal delivery is active perianal disease. That's the only thing we know. A lot of the mystery and the controversy surrounds a woman who had really bad history of perianal disease, and now they're okay because of the medications. What do you do? And also a woman who's had a J-pouch, for example, whereby pelvic floor, muscular, you know, being able to have a strong pelvic floor uh, is important for continence, and we just don't want episiotomies or spontaneous tears that could, uh, like a grade three or four, which can impact the sphincter tone. So I think managing women who want to get pregnant, are pregnant, or postpartum is complex. Uh, you and I share a lot of patients together, and I think they get the best care possible because we educate them and empower them um, to make sure we're doing the right thing for them and their baby. So, yeah. And to reinforce your point, I think it's it, the most important thing is to frame the risks against the risk of active disease. Right. And that's always the take-home point when I'm talking to patients thinking about pregnancy who I then send to you to really reinforce, reinforce. that. <laughs> um, and you know, for the most part, they all do really well. Yeah. And they're all are obsessed with inflammatory control because we really you know, hone in on what's important. So thank you so much for your um, time and for sharing some of the insights from today. And thank you, the listeners, um, for taking the time to update yourselves uh, from our learning and teaching points from the great debates and updates in IBD. Thank you. Thank you.